the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Bubble Bubble, Spies and Doubles, Swirled into a Cauldron and Whipped to a Lather, Dolloped Out Neat, or with Ice if you'd rather. Heretical ebook knowledge brings on genetic slave revolts. Plus, part three of our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. All right now. Hey, we have part one of a wonderful long interview with David Weber and Eric Flint for you this time. This is all about their new book, Cauldron of Ghosts, and about the Crown of Slaves series within the Honorverse. Cauldron of Ghosts just hit number 19 on the New York Times bestseller list, by the way. So chalk up another New York Times bestseller for David and Eric. And we continue our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. That's coming up, but first, here's the news. Well, like I said, one bit of good news is that Cauldron of Ghosts is on the New York Times bestseller list. I would add to that that Robert Butner's Balance Point is also on the national bestseller list this week. We spoke with Bob a couple of podcasts back, by the way, if you remember. And, hey, The Heretic by Tony Daniel and David Drake is now out in mass market paperback and is also on the national bestseller list. This is a book in the general series that Dave and I wrote. The sequel to The Heretic is coming out in September, so get The Heretic now and you'll be ready for that singular event. I would add that when a book comes out in a different format and paper version, the ebook price goes down. So The Heretic is $6.99 in the U.S. now that it's out in mass market, down from $9.99. Why does an ebook price change when a print book comes out in a new format? Well, the answer gets a bit complicated and metaphysical. I could tell you, but then Amazon would have to shoot you. Enough said about that, but be aware of it. And get the heretic by me and Dave. I think you'll like it. I want to welcome David Weber and Eric Flint to the podcast. Hi, David and Eric. Hi, Tony. Hi, Tony. David Weber is the creator of the internationally best-selling Honor Harrington series and the Honorverse within which the series is set, beginning with On Basilisk Station. David's Honor Harrington science fiction novels have sold millions of copies. As those of you who are regular listeners to this podcast know, we've recently spent a year serializing David's latest entry in the main series, Shadow of Freedom. David is also the author of many other Bane books, including the epic Basel fantasy series. David has had uh, 17 New York Times bestsellers, and there are over 7.5 million David Weber books in print. And uh, Eric is the creator of the Ring of Fire alternate history series, the best-selling alternate history series ever. He's a multiple New York Times bestselling author as well. Eric is also the author of the Belisarius alternate history series with David Drake and many others, including many science fiction novels. Together, David and Eric are the co-authors of the Crown of Slaves series of novels. These books are set within the universe of David's renowned Honor Harrington series. The Crown of Slaves series books are espionage novels. The main characters are Haven political operative Victor Katchett. Is that how we say it? Kasha, right, Eric? Kasha. 
Kasha. Okay. And Anton Zilwicky, is that how we say Eric Eric named him, so Eric gets to decide how to pronounce his name. I named him after, when I was a kid, I lived in France in the Alps for a year, and the French family next door to me, I was very close to the the boy, Roger Cachat, and I just named him after that family. Well, I've been reading them for years, and I've never said it right, (laughs) so... Uh, <laughs> books in the series include Crown of Slaves, Torch of Freedom, and we're talk- today we're talking about latest entry, Cauldron of Ghosts, which is now out at in hardcover at booksellers everywhere. David and Eric, uh, can you tell me what is the Mason alignment? I'm going to let David handle uh, it. All right. Um, the Mason alignment is essentially a conspiracy which has been around for five, six centuries, uh, dedicated to the notion that it is possible to genetically uplift uh, the human race to what I guess you would call homo superior. Um, They are an offshoot of uh, the culture in the uh, on the planet Beowulf, which is generally regarded as the... uh, sun source, if you will, of biosciences in the honorverse. And they left Beowulf because the Beowulf and code, bioscience code, prohibits the, for want of a better term, the attempt to produce one true vision of what constitutes uh, human superiority. The Beowulfers are thoroughly prepared to uh, improve individuals uh, as a, for example, to suit them to a uh, uh, colony world that they might be ill-adapted to otherwise, or to repair disease states, or to emphasize certain characteristics as long as the the parents desire it uh, and it doesn't violate other aspects of their uh, bioethics. But they are adamantly opposed to the notion that there should be a design-driven effort to improve humanity. One of the things that the biggest difference between Beowulf and the Mason alignment, to be honest, is that Beowulfers are the ultimate individualists in a lot of ways. They, it's a consensual c- culture, but it enshrines the value of the individual, the worth of the individual, and affirms that the individual is more important than the group. And the uh, Mason view is that the species always trumps the individual and that they are smart enough to understand where the species, quote, ought to be going, close quotes. Whereas Beowulf thinks nobody has that good a vision to be dictating that future. And so and the Masons want to take over the galaxy as well. Well, it's not so much that they want to take over the galaxy. The Masons are more... Um, they want to control the galaxy. There's a difference uh, in their own minds between the two. They want to create an environment in which they will be able to enforce their view of genetic improvement on the entire entire race, uh, whether that requires them to have overt control or covert control is really immaterial to them. 
in a lot of ways. So when you say they want to take over the, the galaxy, I would say it's more accurate to say they want to impose their genetic vision on the human portions of the galaxy. And to do this, they're willing to kill billions and billions of people, destroy the Solarian League, and otherwise do many nasty things because their ultimate objective is so toweringly noble that it justifies anything they have to do to accomplish it. Uh, Eric, is there any, is that pretty much encapsulated? Yeah. Um, the difficulties I have writing it, um, it don't involve what David just laid out. It, it's getting clear because it, it, it gets very complicated in practice. The um, the different layer <laughs> I had to rewrite. Trust me, all kinds of stuff. Uh, it's getting that layer clear. The, know it, Eric. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's getting clear all the different layers of and how they intersect at what's called the onion. It, so it gets quite complicated. But uh, yeah, what David just laid out is is I think pretty clear cut. Um, yeah, it, but. Go, go ahead. Well, no, what I was going to say, say is it, it's kind of the ultimate. Um, it considers itself extremely meritocratic, but it's sort of genetically determined. So there's not even any pretense of egalitarianism uh, in their view of, of how society ought to be organized. Um, and in practice, it's kind of... Um, the way the different genetic lines sort of dominate everything else is kind of, it, it's almost like they're kind of genetic Calvinists almost. Um, you know, that there's the, the, the elect that were chosen by God, only in this case it's, you know, sort of by the genetic code. And they are sort of foreordained to rule everyone else. Um, it's yeah, it's would, interesting. Go ahead, David. No, I, I was going to say... Um, Beowulf is afraid of what Mesa is trying to accomplish here, although they didn't know the Mason alignment existed for a long, long time. But what the Mason alignment is trying to accomplish is opposed by Beowulf in part because they see the creation of genetically quantifiable uh, lines the alpha lines, the beta lines, the gamma lines, as the re-emergence of racism uh, defined in terms of my genes are better than your genes, therefore I have more rights, I have more value to society than you have. The Masons see this as not simply inevitable but desirable because ultimately, according to their theology, and I do think of it as a theology in a lot of ways here, uh, according to their doctrine, uh, all humans everywhere will have been raised to the same level as the alpha lines, and we will all be equal. And in some ways, there is a parallel here with the the, uh, the Marxian withering away of the state, um, in that it, uh, under the the Mason view of things, ultimately we will all be so equal we won't need the alpha lines to tell us what to do anymore. Uh, the problem is that Marxism degenerates into Stalinism, uh, and you have a permanently uh, uh, vanguard of the genetic proletariat, if you will, which is likely to enshrine itself 
ensconce itself permanently in power because it's defending the genetic revolution. Beowulf has pretty much zero faith that the Alpha Lines will ever allow their control to wither away no matter what happens. Um, so that's part of the fundamental difference between the two cultures. Now, Eric was talking about the onion, and there you're getting into how the Mason alignment, this conspiratorial organization, uh, is is organized, because only the innermost core, which is a relatively small percentage of the total alignment, really knows what the ultimate plans of the of the the Detweiler plan that's been ongoing for so long are. They operate through cutouts. They have a bunch of people who think they're in the Mason alignment and who would never dream of killing billions of people or anything else. They simply want to be able to improve their own children's genetic heritage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they are being used by this, this inner core to accomplish their purposes and also as a, what would you call it, Eric, a mask uh, that, that yeah, hides? Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, the, the thing that, that makes it such a um, shrewd kind of conspiracy is that they, they, they hide their, call it evil purpose, within what is on the surface of it much, much worse, which is genetic slavery, which which they actually themselves don't have any particular it's not that they're in, in favor of genetic slavery, it's just a means to an end for them, but uh, what happens is that people get so uh, furious at the at genetic slavery, it never occurs to them that there's actually a conspiracy buried within that that's actually a lot worse. By genetic slavery, you mean people who were born to be slaves? Right, yeah. Yeah, who are genetically yeah. designed to be slaves. One thing you have to understand about the alignment is that, on the one hand, they regard genetic slavery as providing them with a huge laboratory with bunches and bunches of unwilling uh, test subjects where they can work out genetic traits which individually may be superior but don't but they're they're designed into the slaves for a specific purpose it's it's a it's a it's part of their their research area or has been for a long time but it also is as eric was saying it is so um anathematized by the quote legitimate close quotes galaxy that it's kind of like um it's it, it it's kind of like running uh one of the drug cartels in Mexico uh with all the brutality and so forth involved and you're deliberately drawing attention to that so that nobody will notice that you're quietly assembling weapons to overthrow the government of the United States. It's kind of yeah, that right. kind of, yeah. of an operation. Yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it. It sounds like the Masons are a bunch of mini Mingalas the infamous Nazi experimenter in the camps. Yeah, I, I, I think there's probably some truth to that. They certainly, they built their own concentration camp in a way. Um, and it's not like they're, I think of him as being insisted within a, an even more of a nightmare system. And they've gone the other way around. The nightmare system is the public face that they present to the galaxy. And they're actually even worse than that. 
Yeah, except that they would argue they're not. <laughs> you know? and, and it's interesting. It, yeah, one of the things that I have to say here is they're not like the Nazis in saying, you know, there's, there's a, a, a Jewish Bolshevik conspiracy, blah, 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 blah. The, what they do have in common with the Nazis is they believe that there is a superior race. They believe, however, that the superior race has to be created, not preserved. Do you see the, the difference that I'm making there? Yeah, and, and it, it also would not correspond to, you know, modern concepts of what a race is. But, yeah, um, yeah. yeah, that's a pretty good way of putting it. If you look at the members of the Mason alignment, you will find the huge assortment of genotypes, uh, many of them with traceable ethnicities to our own time, et cetera, et cetera. So they're not worried so much about the outside packaging of the of the new race that they're creating. Um, and, and part of that is because of the fact that they're doing this so covertly that if all of a sudden everybody started turning up to be dark-complexioned, blue-eyed, with orange and white-striped hair. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. What's yeah, going on? Yeah, yeah that, that's a good point. Can we situate Cauldron of Ghosts in the Honorverse timeline? It seems like it's occurring at the same time as Shadow of Freedom. It is. Um, I, I think at the end of Cauldron, Eric and I worked it out, that we're about two months of, from the end of um, Shadow of Freedom. Um, now, that puts us, uh, hopefully, hopefully where we are now is that when I start on the next um, Honorverse novel, solo novel, which will probably be in a two or three months given what's already on my plate, um, I will have all of my various timelines in roughly the same place. Um, exactly how that's going to feature into where I go with the next book, how I'm going to focus it, where I'm going to put it, uh, is still uh, indetermined, indeterminate, undetermined in my mind. I know where the storyline is going. I'm not sure exactly how I want to address this book as this the next part of that storyline, if, if you see what I'm saying. As we begin Cauldron of Ghosts, Cachet and Zilwicky have completed a very dangerous assignment in Torch of Freedom. What's their purpose for going back to Mesa? Well, they just they don't have enough information yet. Uh, they were able to bring back quite a bit, but there's still a lot of stuff they don't know. Um, and so basically they're just going to go back to see what more they can dig out. What, what they have discovered in the previous book is that there is something called the Mason Alignment that was responsible for the sneak attack on Manticore, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they have a feel for it. The problem is that their primary information source about the Mason alignment and its objectives and so forth from the previous book didn't make it out alive. They have a member, somebody who was inside the alignment, but was who wasn't all the way inside the onion. And so he could tell them lots of things, but most of what he can tell them applies to the outer layer of the alignment, which is being used rather than the, the internal 
the, the core of the onion. They know the core of the onion exists because they were told about it by Jack McBride, the guy who didn't make it out, but they have no proof that it exists, and they have only fragmentary information about it. So Eric is right. They're going back to attempt to acquire that proof for the rest of the galaxy, which doesn't really believe what the Mantis and the Havenites are telling them, and also because they need that information themselves to, to fight the alignment. Won't this give the other nations who are in alliance or in alignment with Manticore a chance to get ready for an occupation of Mesa? The main reason why, why Tandi, Tandi Palain, Victor's uh, significant other, is going along is because she's the commander-in-chief of the military of Torch. And there's a view here that eventually Mace is going to have to be occupied by the Grand Alliance, uh, which is Manticore, Haven, and uh, Grayson. And probably the Andes are going to, the Andermani are going to want in when they find out that they're being occupied. But anyway, trying to occupy a planet with billions upon billions, I'm having a Carl Sagan moment, uh, of people living <laughs> on <laughs> requires a... Uh, yeah, it took you there a minute, Eric. Um, requires a, a large occupation force. But as Eric pointed out while we were working on the book, it also is going to require somebody who can be seen as what I think of as an honest broker for both sides because only a minority of the population of Mesa are first-class full citizens with their rights guaranteed under the Constitution. The vast majority of the population are either slaves or there is a much smaller, um, would you consider it an interface segment between yeah, the slaves? Yeah. And that they're the, they're the seckies, the second-class citizens. So one of the main reasons for including Tandi is that the the Congo system and the planet Torch, uh, from which, uh, which which has been um, taken over by liberated slaves and is building a society specifically out of, around, and for uh, liberated, uh, emancipated genetic slaves, is going to provide um, advisors, might be the best word, um, uh, liaison personnel who will be trusted by the Sekis and the slaves as part of any future garrison of the planet. Is that... I actually got the idea for that from a... Uh, I took a trip to Germany some years ago uh, to, as part of the 1632 series to visit um, uh, the area of Thuringia where the series is set. And in the course of it, I wound up having a long conversation with a man who is, he's the father of one of the fans of the series, but he's also the town historian of Bamberg, Germany. And he was five years old when the American occupation came in. And he was, has always been fascinated with his whole life, and he's in the process of putting a book together on it. I don't know if he ever finished it. But one of the things that he explained, which I had no idea about this, was that the American army brought in a lot of Jewish soldiers. They were German Jews who had fled Germany, gone to the United States, and, you know, enrolled in the U.S. Army, and they were back now. 
And they were, of course, fluent in German because it was their native tongue. Uh, they knew the culture backwards and forward. It was actually their own. Um, and the U.S. Army used them in the occupation as a kind of interface because uh, they could trust them, obviously. Uh, but also, this were people who understood German culture, knew, you know, you know, were familiar with the situation on the ground, so that it was not a situation where you had Americans going there who had really no idea what the hell was going on. So it occurred to me, and I raised with David, he liked the idea that we could have uh, the torch, which did not have a big enough population to provide the the whole occupation force, but it could provide a kind of core of, of, of experts like that. And they would be trusted, obviously, by the slave population and the the Seckies, who are kind of the equivalent, roughly, of, of black freedmen in American history during the period of uh, slavery. That's, that's, that's a, a pretty good example. Um, I read uh, a letter from um, a um, uh, young, I guess he was in his 30s at the time, uh, black graduate of Harvard uh, addressed to uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, early in his administration. And he said, you know, this. he said, in effect, the, the, the North is crueler than the South. The South crushes our aspirations. You encourage our aspirations and then deny us the opportunity to achieve them. Is, is basically what he said. I mean, here I'm a uh, graduate of Harvard Law School, and I can't practice law because I'm black. I'm not allowed into the courts. Well, the the Seckies on on um, on uh, on Mesa are really almost more in in that position in a lot of ways than freedmen post-war. In, in the South, okay? Um, and I think uh, that it, it's, one of those, it's one of those areas where uh, historical parallels are useful in providing handles for figuring out what's going on, but where it could be a mistake to draw too tight uh, a parallel because it's kind of gone some places that it developed on its own once I started putting the 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 universe together, if you will. I, it's kind of like in in the universe. I've had people come up to me and tell me that well, they can't do things that way in the Royal Manticorn way because that's not how the Royal British Navy did it. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't really care. <laughs> you know, but but people can can they can decide. Okay, this is the model that he's using. Therefore, he has to use that model, and he can't change it. And neither Eric nor I have ever done that in our books. However, you know, we may pick a historic model as okay. This is roughly where we're going from, and we're both historians by training, so we have a sensitivity, I think in some ways, to the, the inner mechanisms of the historical model that we're using. But as soon as we start writing, uh, the DNA starts mutating uh, significantly, and I don't think either one of us feels especially bound by the model that we begin with. No, you can't be, because I used to actually teach a course in historiography, which is the theory of history. I mean... All historical phenomena are unique. You can draw analogies, and the analogies can be very helpful, but they're never identities. And for instance, to use the Seckies, there are also elements in the Seki reality that's somewhat analogous to the situation of the Cape Colors of the Indians in South Africa under apartheid. But none of this uh -huh. is exact. Uh, no. 
they're helpful because they sort of help you get a get a handle on and so forth. But but you know, yeah, I remember when David told you a story of somebody lecturing him about he couldn't do it because the British Navy didn't do it. Yeah, and the man of corn doesn't Navy doesn't swab the decks either. <laughs> And they don't have illiterate sailors as the British Navy did because you can't be an illiterate starship. <laughs> you know, anyway. No, no cannon yeah. sails in the Royal Navy. Well, yeah, it's. Um, the, I actually just had some discussion of this uh, over on over on uh, DavidWeber.net. Somebody had 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 in essence, complained that he thought I was loading the bad guys up with German, <laughs> German and I think Slavic names. And I was like, well, you got to look at kind of the ethnicities that I've run in under those names. I mean, you know, um, it's kind of like Tandy Pelaine's ancestors were African, but she's almost an albino uh, with, you know, ivory skin, platinum hair, blue eyes, the whole nine yards, but she's named Tondi Pauline. I mean, you know, um, so, but one of the points, one of the points that I made in responding to this is I think that you have to build imaginary worlds out of building blocks you take from the real world because the reader has to have handles that he can use to understand and conceptualize what you are telling him. And I think that's one of the things that we historians who write science fiction uh, focus in on more, more tightly than some other people who have written science fiction do. Yeah. This is a science fiction story. It's not historical fiction. It really isn't. And I can remember this was a number of books back when when David's plot began deviating from the actual Napoleonic you know era model, and and there was a certain type of fan got all worked up about it. And <laughs> I, well, I, had, I, had, I had I had deliberately set the peeps the the Havenites up so that people would say, oh, he's using the French Revolution. I gave him the tennis court oath. I gave him Rob S. Pierre as the chairman of yeah, right. the yeah, committee yeah, yeah. of safety and so forth. When I, I actually intended to go somewhere else all along, and it was kind of a way of of doing the reveal when I got there because everybody, everybody expected Esther McQueen to be Napoleon, and instead, they got Thomas Theismann, who was sort of a Cincinnatus kind of of a Napoleon. <laughs> you know, kind of thing. I don't think anybody saw that one coming. <laughs> Can we talk a bit about the delightful characters y'all have created in Kachet and Zowicki? They've turned into quite a team working together. Uh, tell us more about these guys. Yeah, well, well, I I I invented. Um, Anton, but when I invented him, I didn't really anticipate that he was going to become any kind of a viewpoint character. When Eric did uh, From the Highlands, um, he asked if he could borrow Anton. And I said, sure, I don't have any plans for him. And you can see what happens when you tell somebody that in your universe, okay, because he just went totally off the deep end with my character and took him all kinds of places I wouldn't have gone. Um, but it's been a surprise. There's a bit more to that backstory. Um, I told David I would 
use a character, one of the characters I would use, one of the major characters would be someone he'd already put into the series but had had as a minor character. And I started reading the series from On Basilisk Station forward to find a suitable character. The difficulty was he kept killing them off. And it was only when I got to the third book, Short Victorious War, that I finally found a character that appeared to survive. And I remember calling him up and saying, did you kill off Zilwicky? And and he said, no, I actually never used him again. I said, fine, then that's the one I'll use. Plus, the other reason I used him was that he had that four-year-old daughter in Short Victorious War, and that is what gave me the idea of starting from the Highlands with his daughter ten years later being uh, kidnapped and, and having to escape on her own. So I sort of spun the plot off of that fact. Um Kasha and Catherine Montaigne I developed out of scratch. Those are not they're their first appearance in the Honor Verses in From the Highlands. Uh, what, one of the things that I like best about Kasha, there's, there's, we both kind of had a hand in their future DNA, still more Eric than me, but because we've had to sort of shape them into how they fit into the entire series, and I've had to have a meeting with Honor and, and things like that. Um, but one of the things that I really liked about the character of Victor as Eric began developing him is I've always operated on the theory that there are good guys within the bad guy system, if you follow me. And here was Victor who genuinely believed in the ideals of the revolution and who was 100% committed to them, uh, who found himself uh, face-to-face with the fact that the revolution was, in essence, being betrayed from within, um, and who found his own way to stand as as uh, a guardian of that revolution, even though even though the state that he was out to create and so forth wasn't the one that eventually re-emerged. And yet he was able to recognize in the one which re-emerged much of the ideal to which he had committed his life, and he remains absolutely, fiercely committed to it. Uh, he's a, he is on the surface, he is... You, you almost think when you first look at him that this is a two-dimensional guy because you don't get real deep into emo, you know obvious emotion and so forth. But you very quickly realize that this is a very deep character, and that what makes him look as as um, monodirectional as he is is the fact that his complexity results from his clarity. His his he is. Um, I tell you what, Eric, the guy that he reminds me of, and I cannot think of his name right this minute. Uh, um, the um, the smaller of uh, of Belisarius's two bodyguards, the swordsman. Yeah, yeah, uh, Valentinian. 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 And he's yeah. I think there's a lot of Valentinian in 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 Victor's. Um, literary DNA because they are both, as Valentinian says at one point, you know, he's pretty much, he's stripped down. He's very, 
Yeah, his personality so, so lots. Yeah, you're right. There's a scene where, toward the end of the Belisarius series, where where this this young Indian woman that he's taken a liking to has a child. She's a, a former prostitute, and 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 she's wondering if that fact bothers him about her, and and it just doesn't. And and he says, no. He says, I'm pretty stripped down. Um. By which he means he has a moral code, but there's not a lot of flourishes and curlicues on it. It's really pretty stripped down is the right way to put it. And she says, you must, you must have done something right then in an earlier life. Because um, she also has pretty much the same thing in her own life experience. The one difference yeah. is that Valentinian had no particular ideology other than loyalty to Belisarius, whereas no, Victor does. I model Victor. I mean, I use there is an historical analogy which I use as a model. Now it's just a model; it's not an identity. But I model him after a Russian Civil War Czechist in the early period, around 1919, when Jerzynski was was heading up the Cheka, and the Cheka morphed into the the Russian, the Stalinist secret police and the NKVD. It, it developed such a reputation for brutality that, of course, that naturally affects people's view of it all the way back to the beginning. But Jerzynski yeah. was not Stalin, and the original Czechists were by and large idealists, and they tended to be typically young men, much like Victor, who had, he had a, he grew up in the slums, he had a pretty limited view of the world, he wasn't well educated. Um, but they were fiercely devoted to revolution, and during the Civil War, the Czechists were actually out on the front lines. They weren't, you know, yeah. I mean, some of them were, were, were functioning as prison guards, but most of them were actually out on the front lines. Um, yeah. What happened as the Russian Revolution degenerated was that they suffered huge casualties at the hands of Stalin himself, and because they were a lot of the ones he had shot. But it was always yeah. true up until the late 30s, that the sector of the Russian state apparatus that was most likely to produce people who would defect, break away from Stalin, and and typically join the left opposition in exile, that would be the people around Trotsky, came out of the KGB. And the reason was because they still had some of these initial idealists, but the other reason, of course, was you can't keep things secret from your secret police. <laughs> they have to know what's going on, or else they can't do their job. And so... They were the ones who would actually find out just how rotten everything was. And that's yeah, it, pretty much what happens to Victor when he gets out of the academy. Yeah, Victor it it's almost like it's almost like a Czechist emerging from the NKVD. And yeah. he doesn't defect to the left opposition. He's in a position to I hate to use this phrase, to bore from within. Um, uh, because there's a resistance movement within this Stalinist NKVD, which wants to take its revolution back. All right, and that yeah. is really where Victor is: is he wants to take the revolution back from this this uh, uh, the the problem with state security, which is what he emerges from is that it is run by one of the greatest monsters in the universe who has virtually no personal political ambition of his own. But the problem yeah. is that he is he's a sociopath in a lot of ways. He is willing to do whatever needs to be done. I'm talking about Oscar, Oscar Saint-Just. Saint-Just really has no... 
counterpart in the Russian Revolution because um, the, by the time you get to Stalin's era, people like Beria and so they very much had personal ambitions. And, and but what he is analogous to is some figures in the French Revolution, um, yeah, uh, like yeah. Danton, Murat, and Robespierre himself, who who were still really pretty much you want to call them that idealists. I mean, they weren't corrupt on a personal level. Uh, but they're every bit as as psychopathic as uh, as Saint Just was. By the time Victor emerges, um, Saint Just has put his imprint on what amounts to a reign of terror um, throughout the entire People's Republic of Haven, and Victor finds himself confronting the 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 fact that all that state security seems to recognize now is the iron fist and that the iron fist is repressing the very people the revolution was supposed to help uh, in a lot of ways. And then he runs into um, to Anton, <laughs> and Anton is... Um, when, when Eric started discussing... Anton's character with me when he got ready to do the short story. I said, well, you know, he's a Griffin Highlander, and and Eric says, was that, more or less. Uh, and I said, well, you know, these are the, the, the fiercely conservative supporters of the crown. They, they're like Highland uh, you know, stiff-necked, stubborn Highlanders. They they hold grudges for forever. You know, they're feudists all night yards. So here we have here we have Victor, servant of the revolution, out to overturn. You know, all privilege that went up. And here we have Anton, who supports the queen over everybody else, but doesn't <laughs> trust the nobles. And and it's like it's like you know, uh, oil meets water. <laughs> But it, it worked. It worked very well. That was part one of our interview with David Weber and Eric Flint on New York Times bestseller, Cauldron of Ghosts. We'll have the rest of the interview next time on the podcast. And now here is part three of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic as read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you are not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Here's what has gone before. It's the 1930s in America, but all has been magically changed. Now, a handful of people from all walks of life have been given special magical talents. These are called actives. Some use them for good, others for self-serving ends, and some use them for murder. And when they do, are there any who can stop such twisted power? Meet Jake Sullivan, ex-con and private investigator in a very dark world. He's about to get sent back to Rockville Prison, a special penitentiary for actives, unless he can help capture a brood of a woman named Delilah Jones, wanted for murder. Delilah is an active who specializes in tearing men apart. Jake would rather leave Delilah's capturing to others, but since he's on provisional probation, a return to Rockville will be his fate unless he can pull off the catch of the decade and bring Delilah Jones in. Here is Bronson Pinchot with part three of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic.
Sullivan sat uncomfortably in the back seat of the Ford as they watched yet another dirigible drift into the station. Purvis and Cowley were in the front seat. It was raining hard, pounding mist from the pavement and creating halos around every street lamp. This should be it, Cowley said from behind the steering wheel. His Thompson was on the seat next to him, and he rhythmically tapped his fingers on the wooden stock. The informant said she would be on the 815, Purvis said, checking his pocket watch. Must be running late cause of the weather. An informant? So that's how you found her. Sullivan wasn't surprised. He'd been ratted out himself all those years ago. Figure. I don't like this, Cowley said. There's too many people around if she goes active. It'd be safer to tailor to someplace quiet. We already talked about this. We can't risk losing her. She's supposed to be coming here to do a job for the Torrios. You want somebody like her working for Crazy Lenny? Sullivan just listened. Strategy wasn't his area. He just did what he was told. Nobody expected a heavy to be smart, so Jake found life went easier if he just kept his mouth shut. But if it were up to him, he would have to go with Cowley's plan. It wasn't like Magicals didn't catch enough heat from a few bad apples as it was. The last thing they needed was stories in the papers about a brute taking the heads off some G-men in public. You ready, Sullivan? Purvis asked as he opened his door into the downpour. Yeah, he muttered. This is the last time, you know. That was the deal. After this, I'm a free man. I ain't beholden to nobody. Over my pay grade, the senior agent responded before stepping out. He slammed the door behind him. All down the street, other cops saw Purvis appear, and the lawmen began to exit their cars as well. He better keep a leash on those bulls, or this could get ugly, Sullivan said as he pulled a pack of smokes out of his coat. Got a light, Sam. You know I always do, Sullivan. Cowley turned around and snapped his fingers. A flame appeared from the end of his thumb. Figures God would bless me with a little tiny power, and he gives a magic lighter to somebody who doesn't smoke. He chuckled. Cowley was some religion that forbade smoking, a strange combination for a torch. Sullivan lit the fag. Ironic. He took a long drag. Sullivan liked the agent. Cowley was homely and avoided the spotlight as much as Purvis sought it. They'd worked together before, and Sullivan knew the agent was competent. You know, you best not let your boss you do that. I hear Jag, I don't like magic. Lots of folks don't. Cowley turned around and opened his door. We'd better go. He got out, pulling the Thompson with him. Sullivan sighed. Cowley was the weakest kind of magical, with just a flicker of natural power. But even that could ruin a man's career in some circles. He tugged his hat down low and got ready, feeling the power stored inside his chest. It took a lot of practice to build up that much and still keep it under control. He activated a small part and felt his body shift. For a brief moment, the world around him seemed to flex. The springs on the Ford creaked. He cracked his knuckles, feeling the spike, gently testing the tug of gravity around him. Cigarette dangling from his lower lip, he opened the door and slowly unfolded himself from the back seat. 
Jake Sullivan was a big man, and he used a big gun. He reached back inside and maneuvered the long case from the back seat. The black canvas bag was enormous, and he let it dangle from one hand. Cowley looked over, rain running off his fedora, and pointed at the case. I don't see how you can carry that thing around. Sullivan took one last drag before tossing his smoke into a puddle. Saved your life in Detroit, if I remember right. True, but it has to weigh a ton. Not to me, Sullivan said as he reached into the bag, grabbed the Lewis gun by its stock, and withdrew it. Even twenty-six pounds empty didn't really concern somebody who could alter gravity. To him it was light as a feather and swung like a bird gun. Damn, is that a fence post? Purvis asked, cradling a short-barreled Browning Auto 5. Put that thing back. This is an arrest, not a war. You don't know Delilah. Sullivan threw the sling over his shoulder and head so the massive machine gun could hang at his side. It wasn't exactly concealable, but his parole deal had specified he would help take down active murderers. Not that he had to be tactful about it. You know, Purvis, I've never gotten a gunfight and said afterwards, Damn, I wish I hadn't brought all that extra ammo. Put it away, Sullivan, that's an order. I got lots of men who can shoot, and I've only got one that can do. He waved his hands like a bad stage magician. Whatever it is you do. Where'd you get that monster anyway? Cowley asked. Flea market. Sullivan answered as he unslung the mighty Lewis and put it back into its case. All the spikers had been issued heavy weapons in Roosevelt's first volunteer. He'd brought quite a few souvenirs back from France besides the shrapnel still lodged in his body. He might not be able to take the Lewis, but he still had a forty-five auto riding his hip. Magic was great and all, but a lot of problems could still be solved faster the old-fashioned way, and Jake considered himself a practical man. Just do your job and we'll keep you safe, Purvis promised. I want this to go nice and clean. You just wrap her up. At least Purvis seemed like the kind of agent who cared more about being effective than being popular in the papers. Unlike the fiasco in Detroit six months ago. Yeah, fine, he said shoving the canvas case back into the Ford. He closed the door too hard. You know, Agent Purvis, I know Delilah pretty good. The dame's had a tough run. She's not the kind that'll go down easy. And she ain't going quiet, that's for damn sure. She's a fighter, but I never knew her to be the murdering kind. You saw the same file I did. I've got five dead men that say different. Next snapped one arm torn clean off, Purvis scowled. I've got my orders. We take her alive. But I'm more worried about the safety of those boys than I am about orders. You getting me heavy? Sullivan preferred the more dignified term gravity spiker. Heavy was what you called the passives who were employed in factories as human forklifts. Cold water was slipping inside his trench coat as he shrugged. He just wanted to get this last job over with and finally get the man off his back. I get you, Agent Purvis. The street was clear of oncoming headlights, so he started across, big boots splashing through the puddles. The six G-men followed.
The wedge-shaped dirigible was gradually slowing between the towers, and when it came to a rest, the passengers would begin to debark. It was slow going in bad weather, and this particular balloon was just a little 200-footer hybrid machine, so it was getting kicked around quite a bit by the wind. The Springfield Dirigible Station was relatively small, nothing like the enclosed behemoth just constructed in Chicago. Ground crews were braving the rain and catching the security lines. One man was giving them orders with a bullhorn from the tower, probably a crackler, redirecting lightning and static electricity to keep the airfield's workers safe at the ends of those cables. But it wasn't like magicals like that got any credit in the press. No, everybody knew Hearst didn't care about working stiffs with powers. He only wasted ink on people like Delilah. And me, Sullivan thought, troublemakers. But then shook his head, getting back to business. He and the Bureau of Investigation men took cover beneath the overhang at the entrance to the waiting room. Through the glass, he could see the room was nice, mosaic tile floor, all brass and glass on the walls with lots of wood and iron benches for the commuters. There were a handful of people waiting. Purvis left two men outside, and the rest got out of the rain and entered the dry comfort of the lounge. The lift was clearly visible. Sullivan noted that they'd be able to see the passengers before the passengers could see them, which was convenient for once. A United Blimp and Freight worker spotted the guns, but Purvis flashed his badge and waved the man away. The G-men started ushering people out into the rain as fast as they could, and Purvis sent one to make sure nobody was loitering on the stairs. The uniformed bulls were out on the dark perimeter if Delilah somehow made it past or drew on her power and turned it into a fight. Most of the UBF employees didn't know what was going down, but word would spread quickly now. He stood with his back to the mirrored wall. The tower was four stories tall, and that was a lot of stairs, which meant that Delilah would probably come down in the elevator, especially if she had luggage. Either way, from this position he could watch both. Everything in this place was mirrored and shiny. Even the ceiling had mirrors. But the mighty UBF budget had been cut because of the recent downturns, and the place felt kind of grimy. The twenties had been a huge economic boom time, but Sullivan had spent most of those happy years doing hard time. The papers were calling it a depression, but compared to Rockville... Jake thought the whole outside world seemed pretty damn nice. The dirigible's cabin made a strange clanking noise as it mated with the docking platform through the roof above. Sullivan closed his eyes and used a little more of his power to feel the world around him. The giant reserve of helium felt unnatural, being lighter than air, and that always made accurate spiking a little difficult. He'd have to compensate for it. He was supposed to capture Delilah, not splatter her into red mush. It wasn't even five minutes after the dirigible had docked that the elevator came down with its first load of passengers. UBF was the model of efficiency. Like the ads said, they were the convenient way to travel. The agents tensed up, but there were only a few passengers, none of whom were Delilah Jones and a young UBF employee pushing a cart full of suitcases. 
The passengers looked a little wobbly, which was understandable since blimping wasn't exactly a joyride during a storm. Two of the G-men flashed badges and converged on the car before the employee even had a chance to raise the gate. They started herding the passengers outside while Cowley grabbed the UBF and showed him the wanted poster. The kid nodded his head vigorously and Purvis smiled. Gotta. Cowley came back. She's in a red dress, black hat, black furs, and she's in line for the next ride. The gate scissored closed, the elevator lift clanked back up, and it was just then Sullivan noticed a shadow moving on the stairs above. The gray shape was there for a second, but when he looked harder, it was gone. Not think we got somebody up there, huh? he said, pointing. Hollis, Michaels, check the stairs, Purvis ordered, and his two men immediately tromped up the brass-capped steps, guns in hand. They were out of sight in a few seconds, but their footfalls could still be heard. The agent in charge turned back to the elevator doors, nervously bouncing his shotgun. I thought they'd already cleared those, he muttered. There's nobody up here, one of the G-men called from the stairs. The elevator was coming down. Sullivan got ready. He had to be careful. He didn't want to damage any of the other passengers, so he would have to be very selective. If there were people in there with bad tickers or delicate constitutions, it was far too easy to hurt them by accident. And that still mattered to him. The safest thing to do for the bystanders would be to get nice and close, but getting close to a brute was a game for suckers. Guess I'm a sucker. He tilted his fedora down, stuck his hands in his suit pockets, and strolled to the elevator. When the doors opened, he'd just be loafing around as if he were waiting for the next one up. Hopefully she wouldn't recognize him until it was too late. His best bet was to overwhelm her before she could use her power. Cowley and Purvis let him go. They had worked together enough times before that they knew Sullivan was a pro. That was part three of the complete audiobook serialization of Hard Magic by Larry Correa, read by Bronson Pinchot. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, thanks to Laura Haywood Corey, Stephen Long, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz, and a clandestine cacophony of silent ease, released from their long captivity and set free to make uses into uses and smills into smiles plus an impulse wedge of gravitational rainbows and space-based daffodils to Cauldron of Ghost authors David Weber and Eric Flint. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>